Welcome to the Daring Podcast. In this series, we'll talk with artists, writers, musicians, and contemporary creative minds to better understand creative culture and art as a form of social expression. I'm your host, Iwana Friedman. I'm an art director, a product designer, and an image hoarder. Today, I visit my friend and musician Ben Tyree in his Brooklyn studio to chat about creative growth and navigating the industry right now. Here it is. I'm so happy that you're doing this. Talking to you? Yes. Recording it? Yes. Yeah, it's good. Well, when I think of an artist who's like made a career, mm. when I think of what success might look like for an artist, I think of you. Well, it's not always as it seems, you know? Of course um, not. A lot of it is fakery and, <laughs> and uh, insistence and persistence. Which you, you do all of that. So let's set this scene a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Because we're sharing this with a lot of new people, hopefully a lot of like emerging artists who are coming up now. So let's mm-hmm. just kind of set the scene and tell people how you came to even know that you're musically inclined. First of all, I almost yes. hate the word emerging. Tell me why. Because so let's start there. in my experience, that is code for amateur. And we're all emerging. Like, how Always. can we not be emerging? Okay, not so let me, let me then define it. Because you're right. That's a <laughs> no, very I totally know word. what you mean. People who are listening might not right. know what I mean. So Don't let them call you emerging. Okay. You're always emerging. <laughs> no. Rule number one. That's very much about mindfulness. So to me, emerging means that there's now like a level of awareness in your practice and right. our practice as an artist, whatever your medium might be, writing, music, whatever, right. um, where you're realizing that um, there's a voice to be cultivated, there's a point of view to be communicated, you're hungry to put it out there and there's something that's propelling you to yeah. create and see where it goes. So mm-hmm. to me, emergent, it means that you're kind of exploring the edges still you have you're not part of the establishment right you are but it's funny because in like i know a few musicians that have had global notoriety mm-hmm. for 30 plus years who last year were in downbeat magazine emerging artist list like just to give you some perspective on, yeah. on, on, on how i deal with that term it's like, what the fuck are you talking? Are you kidding? Can I swear in your thing? Yeah, it's explicit. Okay. Oh, I love it's marked it. explicit. It's yeah, okay. I need to swear. I need to. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how I'll deal with how I deal with being around children. Period. That's Those okay. Children know swearing exists. I'm good at it. I've never sweared around your kids. I have. I, know, okay. I never have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so. There's trouble with the word emergent. You're right. You're touching on a very good point, and it should be talked about more in depth. Can we pin? Let's put a not pin dwell in, on yeah, it. Yeah. Can we put a pin in that for a second, though? Yes. Because for the sake of this conversation, uh, um, yeah. I I'm really, all yours. what I'm Go curious, ahead. what I'm curious about, always when I talk with any artist, is, is there a moment where this like awareness welled up within you, where you're like this is this feels good to me this path of music in your case feels good to me i don't know what it's gonna look like yet yeah but i'm gonna go and explore it right what was that moment well i knew what it would look like that's the thing is that that's the thing that gets you excited is because you know what it'll look like you know exactly how it's gonna turn out so describe it it. 
I think it happened when I was 11. I think it's interesting that it often coincides with like puberty. Mm-hmm. You're like becoming a grown person. You have new hormones. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I was necessarily musically inclined other than I loved music and was exposed to a lot of it and reacted strongly to it and thought, I want this to be like, this is my home, basically. Mm. The thing I guess that has driven me throughout is I want people to feel how I feel when I listen to music and especially how I felt when I first when it was like totally new, you know. How did it feel? It was like every song was like blew my mind. Like every song was like the greatest song I ever heard. I couldn't believe it. My head was exploding on a regular <laughs> basis. It sounds very visceral. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And then when I was in elementary school, we had this art program in DC. So we would go there half day per week. So I had all kinds of shit from kindergarten to eighth grade. Ceramics and printmaking class, and and I took violin. Violin wasn't gonna be the tool of my identity as a young adult. It didn't feel right. Yeah, so, so yeah, I got really stimulated to get into guitar and songwriting. What did it feel like when you started playing guitar? How did you know that it was the right fit for you? I didn't know. I still don't know if it is. <gasps> there was no evidence I had any talent for it for years. I mean, I, I could say there's some now, sure. Mm-hmm. No, I'm seriously, there really wasn't. I didn't ever practice. I didn't really understand it. I just knew I wanted to do it, and so I started playing when I was 11, and I don't think anyone ever said that I was good until I was, like, 17. So let's talk about the practice then. How, what did that look like? How did it prime you for the years to come, sitting down with your instrument? Well, all my teachers were always like, you have a lot of talent, you need to practice more. That's Mm -hmm. all you need to do, because you have the talent, but it's no good unless you develop it, Mm -hmm. which I think is true with anything. Yeah. You know, you can have a propensity to learn new languages, but if you don't sit down and do it, it doesn't matter. Right. I started reading about guitar players that I liked, and I started reading about their processes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were like, yeah, when I was this age to this age, I practiced six hours a day or eight hours a day or whatever. And I thought, okay, that's what I have to do. And that's like foolish. I mean, if objectively that is foolish because you have to be well-rounded and you have to graduate high school and pursue a respectable vocation and be an adult, right? Respectable according to whom? To, to anybody. You have to not be homeless, right? right. And you have, that's in the very least. <laughs> yes. And um, just the idea of like, you're gonna sit and work on a craft, mm. you know, independent of like somebody saying, I'll pay you to sit down and play guitar for all day long. you know, is self-absorbed, but that's what it takes. So there's no way around that. Part of me was like, well, who am I to do this? Like, who do I think I am? Some people who maybe have more talent than I do don't get to do that for whatever reason. Did you feel like you needed permission? Maybe a little bit. I mean, it's kind of really hard to justify at any Mm -hmm. point. You've been doing this for 15, 20 years now, and you've been able to sustain yourself creating music. With lots of help With from lots, lots of people. You yes, know? yeah. So this is when we can talk about it, the myth of making it on your own. Right. You know, you nobody makes it on their own, I don't think. I mean, I haven't seen it. I don't believe in that. 
I mean, we all have help. We're all helped by somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's just like you live with your parents until your ex or whatever, you live with your family until whatever age, and they make sure you don't die mm-hmm. so that you can <laughs> finish school. And like, that's help. You know, you have friends or colleagues or people who encourage you and who give you opportunities. It's like that is people helping you. you people know? need people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't be here without people. I wouldn't be here without my wife and without my parents and without my friends and without my teachers. And if it's success, it's not really all mine. It's like... And that's a good thing. It's ours. It, yeah. It's like the antithesis of the self-made artist. Yeah, I don't believe in that at all. Yeah. When you read about people, who is 100% self-made? Like, nobody. Can't be done. Nobody. Did you see this movie about Van Gogh? It's called, I think, At Eternity's Gate. It's from like a year ago. Not yet. It's really good. And I think it's somewhat accurate. But apparently, I mean, apparently like the only person that gave a shit about his art was his brother who Mm -hmm. supported him, sent him money and tried to sell his paintings. And everyone else was like, your shit sucks. You're crazy. And he was, he was like schizophrenic or something. He had a lot of issues. But um, in that story, if you were in his life or you were him, you, you would think, like, this is hopeless. What is this person doing? Their stuff is garbage. Nobody will ever like it. In the movie, he's in this mental asylum, and this priest comes to counsel him and basically holds up a painting. And he's like, this is ugly. Like, you have problems if you think anyone's going to like this. And the only one person told him, no, you're great. You're going to... You know, and then he didn't become famous until like well after he died. No, he's a symbol of the tortured artist. Which is also a problematic archetype, I think. Yes. Can you say a little more about that? Well, look, mental health and mental illness is something I think that is really complex and it's really tough to grasp and deal with and manage in a society. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes people can be very creative. It can fuel your creativity if you're a little off or if you have a mental illness or, you know, I mean, not Mm -hmm. always, but you hear about this. There's a lot of that in history. And then there's this romanticization that like, you have to be a little bit kooky to be brilliant. And I don't buy that. I think that's really destructive. But I mean, there are people that really have real issues and they're making things and the things they make are great, but we should tell one help them too. You know, and we shouldn't want to exacerbate our own mental dis-ease thinking that our art will be better. Right. It's not um, the thing that necessarily ignites your creativity. I mean, I think if anything, some people can be in states where they all sort of externally imposed convention just is not even understood or perceived and... So everything just falls away and it's just like about you and your world, right? So I think that is something that can stimulate a creative person, for sure. It also begs the question, would you stay committed to your art knowing that you'd receive no recognition in your lifetime? 
Like if somebody said you want to, you have to paint every day, you're going to really get into it, but like nobody's going to give a shit about it. Would you keep doing it? And maybe after you die, you'll be famous and have a museum. Would you kill like, But is that the goal? Is fame and no, money the goal? Because if be. then that's the goal, then of course not. Why would anybody do it? <laughs> right, exactly. The point is there has to be a higher purpose to it. Right. It has to heal you, bring people together. There ha- it has to somehow make you whole in a way that not doing it wouldn't. Right. Well, essentially, I think the artist is like, you do it because you, not because you have to, because you don't have to. You have to drink water. Mm-hmm. You have to eat. <laughs> you have to sleep. Mm-hmm. You don't have to make art, but you're really, really, really compelled to. It's like a serious drive for you. Yeah, and I've seen what happens when that's suppressed. It's yeah. happened to me. Yeah. And that's atrophy. So... If that's the alternative, then in a way, I could say that it's not a real choice. It's not a healthy choice to not do it. Yeah, but, you know, our culture doesn't really support it. American culture. Yeah, it kind of does. Look, the way we grew up, there were programs, there was an environment that was nurturing in regards to the arts. Most people don't get that in this country. That's becoming more and more of a rarity. Yeah. Um, Plus, it's like the time, you need to make time for it. Right now, our culture is very immediate, you know, like about immediate gratification. And art is not about immediate gratification. The arc of your life as an artist is not, I'm becoming gratified now based on shit I've been doing for years and years and years. Yeah, of course. You know, you might not cash in on things emotionally for years. Or ever. Or ever. I think you do if you keep doing stuff. Eventually you'll look back and be like, I'm glad I'm doing this stuff. I like this. And this one person bought this. And that one person that I looked up to gave me that compliment. And those little things help you keep going. Yeah. Even though there is this myth of people shouldn't reach for external, what's the word? Validation. Yes. But that's bullshit. We, We need that. We don't need validation as much as feedback, I think. Sure. Right? You can't work in a bubble because then I think you'll lose perspective. Right. Sure. But if you're bummed out one day and I Mm -hmm. come to you and say, I saw this thing you did and it changed my whole day around. And then I ran into an old friend and all this great stuff happened to me. And like, I'm crying because something you did touched me. That might give you gas to go another year doing what you're doing. You know what I mean? I think that's exactly (laughs) right. Because we're all in the search of meaning. Right. Right. We want to feel like we belong. We want to feel like we are affecting people in a positive way, I Mm. think. I mean, this is my bias. Yeah. Some people might disagree with it. So that type of feedback is invaluable Mm -hmm. because it's it's a cue that I'm on the right path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about you moving from D.C. to New York as an artist because it's, I think, a really big deal. Mm. You came up here in the early 2000s. 2002. 2002. I mean, to stay, 2002. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to stay. And you made your way up here with Miscellaneous Flux. Yes. That was your band at the time. Paint the picture a little bit. What were some of the advantages of making the move? As much as we moved up as a band, I knew I was also moving as an individual. Mm-hmm. So we moved up as a band. Some people were ambivalent about it. Some people were like, well, this is a thing we'll try. Yeah. So it was very much a personal thing for me. It mm-hmm. was very much like, 
yeah, I want my van to move up here because mm -hmm. there were a lot of opportunities up here. I'm somebody that always, when I see a green light, I hit the gas and I had green lights to move up here and I was like, let's go. And so we, we went, we moved. Yeah. And at that age, when you're in your like early 20s, it's like you don't have as many responsibilities and you don't have as many things keeping you from doing impractical things. The impractical things that are going to be the things that get you through. Like, yeah, exactly. But going back to our first point, I had a lot of help, mm -hmm. you know, like I stayed with friends. So I think about like my journey to New York and it, um, how did you just describe it when you were asking the question? Because I don't know that I agree that it's a big deal. You stayed here. I was committed to staying yes. here. Yes, yes. And you followed through. It was life-changing and a big deal because you were personally committed to following through with it. And that right there is the key to everything. Mm. Like your marriage works because you're personally committed to following through with it. Your career works because you're personally committed to following through with it. If you are an addict, your sobriety works because you are personally committed to falling through with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. whatever you want to do, you have to do that. Whatever you want to <laughs> do well is what I would ask. Yeah, you have to do because... it and you have to do it every day and you have to follow through and commit. So you moved up to New York. Yeah. Okay. So I got a job mm -hmm. at a club as like the door guy. And so that enough was like, okay, somebody just offered me a job in New York. I'm gone. I'm going. Mm-hmm. And I'll do that until I can, who knows? I mean, it was like a start. Yep. And we lived in Midwood. We had an apartment. The whole band had an apartment. And then it all fell apart. Yeah, I mean, that, that <laughs> tends to happen when many people are involved, right? Yeah. There's so many variables. Not everyone wanted that as much as I did. So people left. We tried to keep the band going for like another three years. But eventually, you know, it just... My feeling is that it had completed its course. Yeah, it sounds like that's it. my feeling of it, and I feel good about that. So take take us through what happened next. It can be wide brushstrokes, but for the past like fifteen or so years, you've collaborated with so many people mm. and played music across more genres than I think many people could imagine. One person being able to do. Mm. What is it like to blur those lines and fluidly move from one type of um, sound to another? And how does that play into your broader kind of path as an artist? Okay, so what's it like to fluidly move? Right, because you can play jazz, funk, blues, you've accompanied different kinds of musicians many people would kind of dedicate themselves to one genre. Right. But you're able to move through many. Well, that's your perception of it. Of course it's my <laughs> I can only speak to my perception. My experience of it is that I love all those things. In school and early on, I laid a foundation by which I could have an, uh, some kind of fundamental grasp of different types of music. Mm -hmm. And as far as actually being able to do them, I think it was very much like trial by fire. Like, I had many experiences where I could not do a lot of the things that you're saying I could do. And that I would fall flat on my ass. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to keep doing it because I could feel that I could do it. And I don't really draw much of a distinction between a lot of those types of music because they all have the same foundations of blues. Mm -hmm. That's all, like, American blues-based black music. Mm -hmm. Like, the roots and the DNA are the same. So it's just like a little bit of a tweak. If I'm playing country, 
and funk, you wouldn't think it, but it feels very similar. Because, like, country is kind of funky stuff, especially, mm-hmm. like, the older stuff. I'm not talking about, like, this country pop Nashville stuff. So give, no. us, give us a reference for us folk who are not so familiar with country music. Oh, I don't know. There's this guitar player, Brent Mason, who's, like this Nashville guy who's like sick. Like if you watched him, you'd be like, your head would explode. Yeah, and he plays electric guitar and he plays this like very like finger picky, plucky country, very fast virtuosic style, Mm -hmm. which is very funky, but he can also play funk. It's just like if you see like a little knob and it's like just one turn, quick turn to the left and you're playing funk and one quick turn to the left. I don't know, I kind of see it as like a spectrum feel like I have to see it that way or, or it's just like I wouldn't be able to do it. I was just about to say this is exactly <laughs> if it's why like you're able to do it. this world and that world and this world and it's like this huge daunting <laughs> incomprehensible continuum. It's like okay. Yeah. I don't know. My approach is seeing how things are more alike than different. The fluidity of that is just a byproduct I guess. It looks that way and that just comes from experience. You know, and you can't like read about how to do that. You can't practice it at home. You have to just do it and do it until until it's in your muscle memory. Right. But and then you can never take it for granted and think, well, I figured that out because as soon as you do that, you're back to square one. It sounds like you respect it as a craft. Yes. And if you think you've arrived and mastered it, you're fucked. You should never think that. This is like the <laughs> crux of it all. <laughs> Good. I think this is such an important point. You've never arrived. Never. You never arrive. You're always emerging and you're always going. You know, I think we think we're going to get to this place where it's all going to gel and it's going to feel good and we're going to be masters, right? That's bullshit. (laughs) It's total bullshit. It's a trap and it's not real. It's like you're growing. You're always should be building and growing. And if you're not, you're atrophying. There's no like, well, I'm cool here. I'll just stay here. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work either. So tell me a little bit about what you're struggling with now to learn and stretch yourself. The business mm-hmm. of it is a struggle. Yeah. Just being able to keep doing it is a struggle. As far as my craft, I almost want to say I'm not struggling in that regard, but I just have a different relationship with it. You know, like I'm not fighting, I'm not pushing too hard, but I am still always putting in work. Mm-hmm and always trying to get better and always trying to do new things. Where I'm at with it is that I want it to be as fluid as possible, like more so than having a verbal conversation. Yeah. Like I want to tell you a story. I want to like Mm -hmm. show you something, but I want it to be articulate. There was a time when I felt like my playing, especially my improvising was more brainy than visceral. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, you know, listeners are just like, what is that? It's just a bunch of notes. And they were right. It was just a bunch of notes, you know? So like, what good is that? So I had to kind of retool my whole approach because I I don't want to just spray notes at people. (laughs) You know? That's a great vision. I want it to like, I want people to feel something. I want to feel something. I want to say something. I want to tell a story. I want to paint a picture, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't do that with just technique alone. But that was an important place to be in where it's like I was accumulating technique. I feel like where I'm at now, I'm trying to like make that technique more intuitive and more sort of integrated. 
but elicit a visceral response and an emotional response, right? The audience definitely completes the experience. So we're not making art for ourselves only. Yes, it has to feel totally. good and be oh meaningful to us, but it's more about interconnectedness. I, I never thought it would be like that. You know, you always hear people say things like that and think that's just platitudes, <laughs> you know, like, but it really is, the audience really is like almost just as, if not more important than the performer. And I've been finding that like the audience shows me where to go. So I'm an improviser. When I take solos, it's like I have to, it's like if you're like hooking up with someone, you're on a date or you're with your partner or whatever. If you're tuned in, you try something and then you pick up on the response. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like in any kind of conversation or any kind of... That's co-creation. So it's like I will cast out one idea mm -hmm. and see how that changes the room, if at all, or how people respond. And then that will show me where to go next. It sounds like there's a moment where you'd have to be very open. Yeah. Quite vulnerable and naked. It's so scary. In front of an audience in yeah. order to receive them yes. properly and hear them properly. And then you give them back to themselves, but with you attached Embedded. to it. Yeah. Exactly. And then, but then it's like everybody comes out of that feeling like. They're a part really, of something magical. Yeah. And you feel nourished from that. You just plug into people. It's, it's, yeah, you have to be open and vulnerable and it's scary. But it's also like, that's the real work. That's like the service of it, mm -hmm. you know? Like if you want to affect the world, that's the thing that you have to do. And, and, and people wonder why like artists and musicians are like so sensitive to everything. Mm -hmm. It's because we're practicing being open to people. And some people are going to hurt you. And some situations are going to be dangerous. So you also have to protect yourself. But like when you're on stage, you have to be completely, completely vulnerable. Or it doesn't work. And even if you become really good at that, you can't just assume you're always going to be good at that. Yeah. Because like every time requires you to access that experience fully mm -hmm. without credentials. Mm -hmm. Do you With meditate? Yeah. I mean, I have a yoga practice, so it involves meditation. Is that something that you employ to kind of temper yourself or deal with any sort of blockage before you perform? Yeah, well, I mean, I kind of see performance as a meditation. Uh -huh. I see my practice as a meditation. And I see when I drive, it's a meditation. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm of this mind of I think everything can be a meditation. Mm -hmm. And I think if you practice that, it's easier to get into that place. Like I'm preparing for every gig all the time in every way, technically, emotionally, mentally, yeah. you know, like that's my whole life. And hopefully it's like when I get up there, I can remember you have to be here 100%. And if I can be there 100% and say yes to everything that's happening in that moment, even if shit is fucked up, even if like the sound is crappy, but if I can say yes to that, then saying yes opens you in a certain way and then the thing happens, right? Mm -hmm. You make way for that thing to happen. Because it's bigger than you. It totally is bigger than you. I mean, this all sounds like really like silly, but it's really, it's really real stuff. Well, you're using music and sound as your art form to ignite emotion and make people feel differently. Mm. 
feel love, feel inspired, start to question whatever it is that they're doing, your craft helps people open up and be more mindful. So then, of course, when we sit down to talk about it in detail like this, it can sound quite like esoteric. Yeah. But I think that's what it is. There's a certain mindfulness, a meditative quality to being able to be that vulnerable in front of people and give that piece of you to kind of facilitate that experience for them. Yeah. It's like, um, I don't mean to make this about myself, but I started this podcast. I'm going to edit this out. No, you should keep I, it. <laughs> I don't think I'm interesting. I hate the sound of my own voice. I am totally nervous to speak in front of people. But what I realized, so a podcast was like the furthest thing from my mind of what I wanted to do. And I had the courage to do. But then I realized it's not about me. It's about the people who come on and talk. And you're more interesting than anything I could ever hope to be. Mm. So it's the same thing, right? It's being able to sit down with, in this case, one person and nurture that moment and hopefully be able to vocalize something that's real and meaningful mm. in their path. Yeah. I think it takes yeah. courage to be that vulnerable. Yeah. The that kind of, that does. Yes. That does, I think. Whether it's in front of a live audience or facing an empty canvas. I think maybe it's the courage is you're mm -hmm. trusting strangers to not laugh at you or to not hurt you or boo or walk out. If and when those things do happen, how do you move through that? Times when people have been critical mm -hmm. of anything I was doing, it really affects me because it's like I put everything into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I'm a little bit more grounded and secure now, but there have been times where even if people were giving me constructive criticism, it really hurt, it really yeah. affected me. Because you'd be like, wow, you don't, you have no idea how much I'm putting into this. And you're just going to say, well, I don't like that about it. Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, you just heard it for two seconds. like, And you don't know anything. And you didn't go to school for this. So what do you know? You know, that whole thing happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've had plenty of that. Sure. But in a way, I can look back and be like, well, that made me stronger. Also, not everybody has to be our audience. Exactly. You can look at it. Somebody could look at a painting and be like, that is amazing to me. I can taste it. Mm -hmm. It gets me excited. And somebody could look at it and be like, that is some dumb shit. That shit looks stupid. You know what I mean? <laughs> a thousand percent. And who's wrong, right? It's all subjective. It's so subjective. So music is the same. Music maybe even more so because... There are all these studies now about how sound is actually the one art form that affects you emotionally the deepest. Reason being that it actually is the one that actually touches you. Because actually the sound waves touch part of your body, touch your ear, your eardrums, mm -hmm. and vibrate bones in your body. And so when you hear a sound that is unpleasant, the vibrations, it's like doing physically doing something to you that makes you angry or makes you feel happier. What are you listening to these days? I was in San Francisco and well, played at a record store and bought some things. Um, There's still record stores? Amoeba in San Francisco, which is huge <laughs> and awesome, and you should go there if you're there. So I bought um, Black Sabbath. Nice. 13 floor elevators, you know them? Mm -hmm. And I bought Tame Impala. 
Yes. And so, like, when I'm doing gigs with people, I'm listening to their stuff. Like, so we we did these four nights at San Francisco Jazz where we were doing different artists. Mm -hmm. So we did uh, Max Roach, Abby Lincoln, Prince, Steely Dan, and David Bowie. So I'm listening to all that stuff, preparing for that, Mm -hmm. you know. What are you working on these days? A new Mm -hmm. trio. I'm actually taking some older music and trying to like work it into this because it's different instrumentation so it's guitar and keyboard and the keyboard player plays the bass parts the harmony parts and then he has this instrument he invented called the sam chilean uh-huh do you know about this no not at all teach me so leon gruenbaum invented this instrument he was in vernon reed from Living Colors' first solo band in like the 90s. And I know him from just around, but mainly Burnt Sugar, because he, he's in that now. So he's in this group. He invented this, it, do you know what MIDI, a MIDI control? Yeah. MIDI is a musical instrument digital interface. So the idea is that like, it's like a binary trigger and you have a sound bank and the, the binary trigger triggers whether a note is off or on and also the pitch but then you can have it trigger any sound. So Mm -hmm. you can play trumpet, Mm -hmm. you can set it to like a different key signature. You have like plus keys and minus keys. And Mm -hmm. so wherever you are, you can go up and down. So like, you don't have like, here's the C scale. I couldn't play it. He can play it. I don't know. And he created it. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah, whatever. It's, it's okay. But it's, it's awesome. And so then he has all these cool sounds that he designed. And he's very patient and can learn my crazy music. And so the drummer, Chris Edelton, is the same way. <laughs> you know, he'll put, put a chart. He'll learn it. He's happy to learn. He's really fun, funny, cool to be around. Great player. Where can people hear you guys? We don't have any recordings because we're still very new. This Mm -hmm. is only our third gig that's coming up in August, August 8th at New Blue in New York. There's like YouTube videos of this group. Okay. Yeah. The long-term plan is to record. There'll probably be a CD for people like us that are old and like need to touch, (laughs) touch the music still. I have a CD player in my house. I love CDs. I love rec. I like, streaming is no good. Mm -hmm. The sound quality is inferior. And you're being monitored. Your listening habits are being monitored. It's machine learning. And cataloged. And nobody's getting paid. Spotify, Mm -hmm. CEOs are getting paid. Artists are not getting paid. It's not good. It's not better. The business model has shifted dramatically since you came up. But let's pretend you're debating somebody who's saying exactly this, that it's better than it's ever been. You can get your music out there for free. And I'm doing air quotes. And that's true. So there is some um, truth to that. Debate me and give me your point of view on why exactly. Times are really challenging right now. On one end, you have people like me, you have even hobbyists who mm-hmm. they want to get their music out there. And 20, 30 years ago, that was a lot harder. You know, there was no internet, and if you wanted to make a CD, you had to cough up money, you had to know how to record, if you were going to finance your own project or whatever, and then still, who knows if anyone will care, right? Now, you can literally record some bullshit on your phone, just you singing, walking on the street, and put it on somewhere, and it could be heard by millions of people. 
Mm-hmm. And like, that's kind of cool. That is really interesting that that's the case. So it is like the playing field is leveled and anybody can get it, kind of get it in the game. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's an oversaturation. Whatever is out there has less impact and less weight. Same with this photography. Is my experience. Yes, yes. And it's across medium, though. Yeah, sure. Not in video content. It seems like they've figured out a profitable streaming model. Because like companies like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and even now a lot of the main networks like CBS, they're going doing this on-demand model. Yeah. And like they have budgets to create new content and somehow that's working. And I don't know why that's working for this, but not for music. Maybe it's because companies like Spotify and Pandora, they're not actually like creating content and they're not invested in the content they're just taking it they're and, siphoning and, up. and you know selling ad space and keeping most of the money and there is a lot of money in it for who for the for spotify and pandora absolutely yes. peter frampton's platinum selling artist you know has sold tens of millions of albums i mean just stupid money he said something like like a year or two ago on twitter baby i love your way had X amount of millions of plays, something in the tens of millions of plays, and I got a check for like $2,000. And you'd think, well, Peter Frampton, he made his money, so he has nothing to cry about. But what you'll find is a lot of these older artists that you know were millionaires, they're not always in the positions we think that they're in. Mm-hmm. You know. So what's the recourse? I don't know that there is any, because it's like the Pandora's box, it's open. Once something becomes free, you can't make it unfree again. No, you can't. However, you are a working musician and you're able to sustain yourself. So what ways have you figured out around this issue? You know, I can't depend on sales as being Mm -hmm. a thing. Also, it's like the sustenance. I just have a lower standard of what sustaining means. I don't have a mortgage, Mm -hmm. right? But sales is one of those things. It's like, that's not going to really be a thing. And that's what a lot, you know, that's why people are out there. That's why the Rolling Stones are still touring. But there are also people that would rather be retired. You know, maybe in the history of music making, which is like thousands of years, you had this little tiny sliver of time from like 1919 or 1915 or whatever up until very recently that like people were putting that sound onto objects that other people were buying and they were reproducing it. And it was just this little flash in time. Like an exception. Yeah. So like maybe that's just the deal. Music as like a product and an object and a commodity. Recorded music was just, you know, an exception. Mm -hmm. But people will still hit the stage and people will still teach music and still make it. And I would like to live in a world where I could put out an album and people like it and will buy it. And I don't need to be a millionaire and I don't need to have a big mansion, but I would like to be able to have it be able to do more things for me. Much like a writer can write a book of essays, a novel, whatever, and make passive income off of it. Yeah. I like to avoid hyperbole with this issue because there's a lot of that going around. Like people Mm -hmm. will say, you know, if you were running a catering company and somebody hired you for an event and said, well, this will be good exposure for your company Mm -hmm. and they don't want to pay you. And it's like, you can't compare music to food. 
Because without food, you will literally die. Music is not like if like it won't be fun. <laughs> like you might be sad all the time, but you're not. You're literally your body will not decompose through lack of music. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of this hyperbole going around like that, like comparing Napster mm-hmm. to like shoplifting. Yeah, and I don't know that that's a fair comparison. Now I don't like that there was Napster, and I don't like that. There were people just ripping files off of CDs and just sharing them online. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is stealing. However, the data is being reproduced. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you're putting money down for a CD, like you bought that CD, so you own that. But if the information on that CD can be reproduced, like it can be reproduced infinite times, right? So it's, it's different. And, you know, because of my position, I feel like I should be like, no, it is, it's just theft and it's wrong and this and that, but yet it's happening. I'm hoping that I'll still be able to buy physical music, but you also can't force the world to stay one way. No, that's part of the saying yes. I mean, I think there was always going to be music and there's always going to be people who are like making amazing music and performing and you can go to their shows. And there's always going to be radio, and there's always going to be internet, and there's going to be music everywhere. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to survive. But it's like a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. So you're teaching, right? You take guitar students, like independent lessons. You have gigs with many different other artists. You play live, you tour. You can't rely on record sales, clearly. What are some of the things that you're like incorporating into your professional life to round it out? I don't have a real estate license. I don't <laughs> walk dogs. I mean, those are cool, but... That's uh, all music related. What are some of the things that you've learned about yourself as a human, as an artist over the course of your career? Oh, so many things. Everything I've learned about myself has been through music. That there's always more. Mm-hmm. No matter how good you are, you can always be better. There's always more to you to discover. That it's never too late mm-hmm. to feel new and fresh. That every moment of your life is as important as any other. That if you perform for one person or a thousand, mm-hmm. it should be treated as like very special and you shouldn't downplay any of it. You never know what will come from it. You never mm-hmm. know who you'll affect. Yeah. You should never truncate the quality of your work. Yeah. These things, some of these things seem very obvious, but like I didn't know this at one point. And there's more. I've learned how to like trust myself and trust my abilities and trust my intuition. Like I've learned how to learn things. Mm-hmm. You know, and like music has taught me that, you know, I can learn and integrate things very quickly if I take it a little bit at a time rather than like looking at the whole big thing and like trying to like swallow this big. Mm-hmm. I think that that translates to like any other work you do, especially if you were involved in any kind of activism or any kind of social justice stuff. Right. So like Mm -hmm. the problems are huge and daunting and you can't affect things on a huge level as an individual, but you can affect things locally and in small baby steps Mm -hmm. in your immediate world, which can have huge reverberations. Right. What you're saying is here I am. These are the things that I care about, whatever social issues or creative 
issues, what is the next adjacent possible that I can affect in order to contribute to this broader change in the world? That's a much more realistic, I think, approach Mm -hmm. (laughs) to affecting change. Right. Well, also, it's like your energy can't... It's like you're pushing a boulder up a hill. Mm -hmm. You can't alone push a huge, gigantic boulder up a hill. But you can inspire like 10 or 15 people to come help you push the boulder. Or, you know, or you can push up a littler boulder. Music has taught me that it's like the little things that really matter. You can't go from A to Z. You have to take baby steps. Yeah, like like if I'm learning like 40 pages of music Mm -hmm. for a show or something. It's like if I sit there and I like look at look at the whole book, I'm like gonna lose my mind, right? But I have to take page by page. If I say I'll do one page every day, mm-hmm. after whatever forty days, I've got it. Yeah. If I say I've got to learn this whole thing as soon as possible, it's like I'll never do it. Right. What you're talking about is patience. Right. Which I think is a skill. It's a like meditation in and of itself. It's a practice, right? It's a practice. And I think in this moment of like instant gratification and Instagram and all this stuff, patience yeah. is um, a rarity. But that's really what it takes to build something bigger. It is. And it's what it takes to grow. I don't know what it's going to be like for people who don't value patience. Or who don't see the the value of delayed gratification in favor of like building, you know, a larger picture. And I'm I, I'm not saying that younger people don't value those things. I don't know. I'd like to think people do, but I, I mean, in my experience, like the most lasting change is always slow and incremental. Yeah, yeah. It goes back to what you're saying about the artist who's magically arrived. No. It's a myth. Yeah. Um, and it keeps feeding into this kind of fetish of the tortured artist who's yeah. like all of a sudden made it mm. because it is incremental. I guarantee every time you read about or see an artist or a musician or an actor or whatever who is like come out of nowhere, mm. I guarantee it's like they've been playing deuce for years and years and years and just nobody noticed until they hit this breaking point where all of a sudden they're getting a lot of attention. But like nobody comes out of nowhere. You know, mm-hmm. all success is like the result of just so much work and failure and getting up and trying again. Agreed. I think it's important for people to know that. That's probably the most important thing for people to know. You might say, I want to be a painter, and then you paint one thing and you don't like it and nobody likes it, and you're like, well, I failed. If you just do it all the time, eventually you're going to really like it and people are going to like it. Somebody's going to like it, and you might be successful in 20 years and be like, shit, I'm glad I didn't give that up. But you would have, how would you have known that? The only difference between you and Van Gogh is that he just did it all the time, every day, no matter what. Whether he was broke or hallucinating or cutting his ear off, people that do it are the ones that do it every day. Yeah. Or if not every day, they do it all, they do it regularly and they don't stop. So that's my message. <laughs> yeah, it's the persistence of showing up. Yes, my message is do it every day. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Daring. 
Look out for future episodes where we'll continue to share inspiring talks with creative people who are forced for good. Subscribe to The Daring through your favorite podcast app and check out thedaring.co for more in-depth articles. I'm your host, Iwana Friedman. If there's a topic or new artist you'd like us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at Until next time.